0: Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3. I haven't started preaching yet, you can't cry. (laughs) Oh, ye of little faith. He's crying because they know that I've only got two verses, but they know I'll still stretch it out somehow. You know, last week we we looked at the Church of Laodicea, but we didn't finish it. And so I said, Yeah, I don't know how I'm going to do two verses on a Sunday morning. And someone said to me, I I think you'll figure it out. They know me well. But we looked at this final church that Jesus had a specific message for, the Church of Laodicea. Uh, We saw that they were a church with nothing to commend. Jesus didn't commend anything because they were arrogant and immature. That's a dangerous combination. Two very dangerous qualities combined because when you have that, you think you're okay when you're the exact opposite. And so because of this immaturity and arrogance, they weren't refreshing or healing to anyone around them, not to the believers, not to unbelievers. Now, even though we saw that, we also saw how Jesus longed to be close to them. To, he's knocking on the door saying, open up, I want to be close to you. I want to dine with you. you know? and, and because of that love, he urged them to repent so they could be close. You know, they, he urged them to return to his word so they might begin to grow, begin to mature. But like I said, we didn't finish the message. We left off the last two verses, the last part of all of Jesus' message where he gives the promise to overcomers. And in this promise to Laodicea, there's one of the, I think, most appropriate uh, exhortations for the church today. So chapter, 21 and, uh, chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, I'm going to also ask you to turn to John 16 and Matthew 13. I'm going to be referencing both of those sections of Scriptures quite a few times. So Revelation 3, 21 and 22 but I'll also be referencing Matthew 13 and John 16. And I do want to give you a fair warning. I will get through these two verses fairly quickly, um, but it is not, the end is not near. I have something else I, I want to share in light of these two verses with you this morning that I hope will be a blessing. But Jesus says here in these last two verses, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and then sat down with my father in his throne? He that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says unto the churches. Now remember the overcomer, the one who overcomes is the one who's trusted Christ as their savior. It says in first John chapter five, verse four, who is he that overcomes? But he that believes that Jesus is the son of God. So it is someone who has trusted Christ as savior and of course is following him. The Christians in Laodicea had done that first part. They had trusted Christ as Savior, but they needed to get back to following him now that they were saved, to maintaining their dependence upon him now that they were saved. And when they start doing that again, they'll be able to rest in this promise. Well, what is the promise? To the overcomer, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, but he qualifies. We'd already learned about numerous promises that Jesus gives to these churches that, you know, those who overcome, they'll reign with him, but this one's a little different. He says he qualifies it. He says even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. So the question is if we're going to overcome like Jesus overcame, how did Jesus overcome? Well, turn to John 16. In John 16, Jesus explains. I'll also look at one verse in John 17, but we're going to start with John 16:33. Now, the context here is Jesus, this is his last night, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, you know, he's going to be crucified the next day, and then, of course, three days later, rise again. So this is the end. Um, Jesus, he is, the last moments he's spending with his disciples, this is just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Chapter 17 is what truly should be the Lord's Prayer, titled that. Really, the Lord's Prayer is the, our prayer, the disciples' prayer. He teaches us how to pray. But this is his prayer, his great high priestly prayer, interceding for us right before his arrest. So this is right before he goes to the garden. And he says in John sixteen thirty three, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have what? Overcome, Overcome the world. So how did Jesus overcome? John 17, 4, he explains in his prayer to the Father. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. That's how he overcame. He finished the work that God gave him to do. So even as I overcame, he says, that's how you're gonna overcome too. You're gonna overcome and sit down with me in my throne just like I overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. We overcome by finishing the work that God has called us to do. Now, God has given us some very generic things to do that apply to every single one of us. The Great Commission, to go out and make disciples, right? That's for all of us. We are called to, to know Him. We're called to love Him. We're called to follow Him to the end of our days, right? I mean, these are all generic things. In addition to that, we also have unique things that God has called all of us to. I pray a prayer for our church, for you, every single day, and it's this, that the Lord would show all of us what is the hope of our calling, that's what Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, that God would show them what is the hope of their calling. What is the hope of our calling? Well, we've been called with an expectation, called with purpose. We've been summoned, invited into the family of God for a reason. And it's not just to, you know, say, I'm here, <laughs> you know. We have purpose. We need each other. You have purpose in the body of Christ. I have purpose, you know. And so, you know, part of finishing the work that God has called us to do is doing that work that he's called us to do. And we, when we're being faithful with that this beautiful promise that we're going to overcome applies to us so just as jesus overcame finished the work god gave him to do we too can overcome if we just stay on track we just keep moving forward now the disciples at this point in time thought they were already there If we just go up a few verses, and and I'll give you a little bit of context here. In this night when Jesus has the Last Supper with them, they celebrate Passover, they're just pelting Jesus with questions left and right. Remember, Philip says, oh, you know, Jesus, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. That'll be good. Then we'll be okay. And then, of course, Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long, and you don't understand that having seen me, you've seen the Father? And so they ask these questions, and Jesus teaches them something new. They ask more questions, Jesus teaches them something new. And so the idea being conveyed here is, you know, they don't know what they're doing. But by the end of all this Q&A time with Jesus, verse 29 says, his disciples said unto him, lo, now you, don't, you speak plainly and don't speak a proverb. In other words, you're not speaking metaphorically or allegorically, now you're talking plain sense. Now we are sure that you know all things and you don't need that any man should ask you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. We're good, Jesus. Whatever comes our way, we're good to go, you know? And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Now you trust me? You think, you think you're there? You think you've arrived? You think, you think you've gotten to the place you need to be at? This is a very loud to see in mindset, isn't it? We are rich. We've got everything we need. We're, we're good. And Jesus says, Is that really true? Look at Verse 32. He says, behold, the hour comes, yea, it's now come, it's it's arrived already, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and you shall leave me alone. Jesus, of course, says, I'm not alone, the Father's with me. But the point is, he's communicating to them, you think you've arrived? Let me tell you what's going to happen in just a few hours. You are all going to leave me alone. Literally in the Greek, it means you're going to abandon me. You're going to abandon me you think you trust me now? (laughs) You think you've arrived? This is what you're about to do. See, the disciples thought they were on track just like Laodicea did, but they didn't realize just how proud they were. And so Jesus says something very similar here to them like He does to the church at Laodicea. You think you're okay, but the truth is you're not. Now, a few hours after Jesus spoke those words, the disciples indeed abandoned Him. I imagine watching them scatter. I imagine watching Peter not just deny him in the courtyard uh, where Jesus is being tried, but hearing Peter call down curses, saying, God, strike me dead, strike me with lightning if I've ever met the man. I imagine that watching all of that surely turned Jesus' stomach. But he doesn't predict they're going to do this just so he can blast them or just so he can tell them how awful they are. He tells them, he's telling them this so they can be at peace. Look at verse 33, John 16, 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. Your world's going to get turned upside down right now. You're going to blow it big time. All the temptations that are out there, you're not ready for them, and you're going to fail. But I've told you this all beforehand, that in me you might have Peace. So cheer up. I've overcome the world. You will too. That's the unspoken idea. It's the promise given to Laodicea. You will too. So, because their story, like Laodicea's, isn't intended to end with them being spewed out, with them being the vomit on the floor, their story ends with dining with Jesus. It's going to be overcoming all those struggles. And so Jesus says, just like I finished the work that my father called me to do, to overcome those struggles, you just need to keep walking with me despite all your failures. Finish your work just like I finished mine. That promise is for his disciples, that promise is for the Christians of Laodicea, and that promise is for you and me. Because right at the end here in verse 22 of Revelation 3, he says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the church of Laodicea, No, to the churches, to all of them, to me, to you, to us. You know, we look at Laodicea here and we see they weren't doing anything that was worthy of being commended when this message is sent. But Jesus promises even the church of Laodicea, even the Christians here who have been turning his stomach, that if they keep following him, they will be victorious over all their struggles. And if you keep walking with Jesus, that will be your future too, amen? (laughs) Now, why is that kind of message so important for the church today? I mean, why is it special to us and maybe, you know, uniquely? Why, why? I mean, surely that's a special promise for Christians of all time, right? Why would I say it's special to us? Well, because I believe Jesus gives some clear indicators That there are more applications to these seven messages to seven churches than we've discussed up to this point. If you remember at the very beginning, before we started, all these letters, I, I, I call them messages, I'll explain why in a second. We got to the beginning, got to all these messages, I explained that these are seven real churches with real good works and real problems. These were actual churches with actual people who had these actual good things and negative things. A second application is that these also describe seven kinds of churches that can be found at any point in history. There can be Philadelphia-type churches. There can be Thyatira-like-type churches. I also explained this can be seven different kinds of Christians that can be found at any point in history. And of course, our goal is, as Calvary Chapel Orlando, to be like either Smyrna or Philadelphia, right? The ones that Jesus had nothing bad to say. As a Christian, it's the same thing. I want to be like Smyrna or Philadelphia, the church that, that Jesus had nothing bad to say. All he did was commend them right? And and my hope is that's the case. I'm particularly liking Philadelphia because I don't want to be the persecuted church. But I believe the text implies there's one more application. If we look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says the very first words are after this. That phrase after this is two Greek words, meta, tauta." after these things is what it means. Jesus used this same exact phrase, meta tauta, in chapter one, verse nineteen, when he says, "Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter." Is actually two words, meta tauta, after these things. What things? After the things that are. So when Jesus was giving this explanation to John, he was telling him how he wanted him to structure the letter of Revelation. He says, I want you to structure it with section one being the things you already saw, chapter one. Chapter, section two being the things that are now going on. That's what it literally means, the things that are literally means the things that are now going on, the things of the church, chapters two and three. And then the third section, chapter four to the end, after these things of the church. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because those things, plural, could certainly be all the various things and situations that Jesus addresses in these seven messages to these seven churches. But we cannot forget that each message ends with this important phrase, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches, not just one church. This is why I prefer calling chapters two and three Jesus' seven messages to the church rather than Jesus' seven letters because the book of Revelation is not seven letters. It's one letter. Every church heard every message for every church and it was intended that every church that ever reads the book of Revelation would hear all these messages. Jesus' intended audience by saying anyone who has an ear to hear He is making it clear that his intended audience is more believers than just the believers in these specific churches. He is making it clear that he is talking to believers all throughout church history, all throughout the church age, the time of the church, the things of the church. And as such, I believe it makes more sense to interpret the after this of chapter 4 verse 1 as after the entirety of the church, after all the things of the church after the rapture. Now, we'll begin studying the rapture next week. I say begin because we'll be there for a little bit, so bring your pitchforks. But I would like to suggest that Revelation 2 and 3 give us a rundown of the entirety of church history. I can't say it's 100% for sure, so if you disagree with me, that's fine. It's not like we should ever, you know, argue over that because the Bible doesn't come out and say so. But I'd like to give you some things to think about before we move on to chapter four. Now, a couple rules when you're studying your Bible, some rules for interpretation. One rule for interpreting your Bible is Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture, not a commentary, not Pastor Will, not anybody else. Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. Now, for that to be true, that means no truth can stand alone, right? So if I tell you that chapters two and three gives us a history of the entire church, but we can't find that teaching anywhere else in Scripture, then I'm probably wrong, right? So do we find this type of an idea anywhere else in Scripture? And the answer is we do. I'm not gonna read all of Matthew 13 to you because we don't have time for that today. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives seven parables. All of them start with, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then, One by one, it gives us a description of what God's people will be like, right? And obviously, as Jesus is speaking to the disciples here, this is giving an idea of what the church will be like. This is something that people do not disagree on, all right? Matthew 13 contains seven parables about the kingdom of heaven. Some of them illustrate the beautiful love of God for us and what he does for us, how he comes and finds us, how he's, you know, laid down everything for us, you know, Some of them show the work of the enemy in the midst of the work of God, the wheat and the tares. And then others make sad predictions of various compromises the church will make throughout its history. If we examine the traits of these seven churches, starting with Ephesus in order, and we follow them with these parables in order, we will find some fascinating correlations to both history and with those two passages of Scripture. And what my hope is, is to just share a little bit of that today, and then with an application of where that leaves us with Laodicea. So, let's start with Ephesus. And again, I'm not going to go through all of these chapters, read all the verses again. Remember, Ephesus was a church that was deeply committed to God's word, but it was no longer a loving church. You know, they had left their first love. And when we examine the letters of the New Testament, we see that most churches They stood strong against false teaching, but they were drifting from love for Jesus and from love for one another. Almost all of the letters are correction of some sort, you know? And so what's interesting is the word Ephesus means relaxation. Despite all the amazing seed that the early church sowed and despite the hundredfold result they got, the first parable there in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, despite all the wonderful uh, uh, fruit that came in, The tons of people that got saved, by the time Revelation's written, the early church, many of them had relaxed in their relationship with Christ. Clement, who was the senior pastor of the church at Rome, he wrote a letter to the church at Corinth at the same time the book of Revelation was written. We have it in its entirety. He started off his letter by challenging them with this, and I quote, shall we now become slothful and well-doing and cease from the practice of love? He ended his letter by saying this, Let us therefore with all haste put an end to this state of things. Let us fall down before the Lord and beseech him that he would mercifully be reconciled to us and restore us to our former and former seemly and holy practice of brotherly love. These quotes aren't scripture of course but they are the words of a godly man who's concerned about where the church is at. So when Jesus says to Ephesus, hey, You need to remember from whence you have fallen and repent and redo the first works. It's the same thing Clement was saying to the church at Corinth. This wasn't just where Ephesus was at, this is where the entire early church was at. Now, that period did not last very long because we get to the next church, which is Smyrna, the persecuted church. Smyrna means myrrh, which is a burial spice. So it was given to Jesus, you know, by the wise men. They knew where he was headed. And while the church experienced persecution under Emperor Nero and under Emperor Domitian, uh, Domitian was the one who imprisoned John in Patmos, those persecutions paled to what would come afterwards. From 108 AD to 313 AD, the Roman Empire executed over 2 million Christians. Being a Christian during that time was extremely difficult. You did not have a right to own property, you didn't have a right to worship in public. None of those things were given to Christians. Well, in 313 A.D., Emperor Constantine signed a treaty called the Edict of Milan. It granted, for the first time in the Roman Empire, toleration to Christians. This put an end to the massive persecutions from the government. They still might get them locally, but from the Roman government. And it ushered Christianity into a new age, the age of Pergamos. Now, Pergamos, remember, was the church that had remained faithful to the Lord despite living where Satan's seat was in the heart of Mystery Babylon, as I explained to you. But they did have one problem. They allowed two kinds of false teachers to have a voice in their meetings. The first group of false teachers they tolerated were those who imitated Balaam. Balaam who told people it was okay to sin in order so he could make money. They were doing the same thing there in Pergamos. They were being tolerated there. The second group of false teachers that were being tolerated were the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were those who elevated themselves above other Christians because they had special revelation from God. Now, prior to 313 AD, it would have been very difficult to pursue that kind of fame or wealth by saying, I want to be a pastor. You were usually the first one on the chopping block, the first one to be burned at the stake, the first one to go into the Colosseum. So it was extremely difficult to, you know, pursue wealth or to pursue fame, you know, as a Christian at that time. But that changed in 380 A.D. when Emperor Theodosius made Christianity the Roman Empire's state religion. You know, Constantine always gets blamed for that. And I, I, can I tell you? Can I give you a word of advice? If you actually like history, or you actually want to know history, stop going online. Stop listening to the radio, because all these guys, like 90% of the stuff they share with you, whether it's American history or whether it's it's you know uh, global history, world history, it's not correct. Constantine always gets blamed for stuff he didn't do. There are other things that Constantine could probably get blamed for. But he's always getting blamed for stuff he didn't do. Constantine did not make Christianity the state religion. Emperor Theodosius did, 40 years after Constantine was dead. But when Emperor Theodosius did that, pastors and deacons became some of the wealthiest and most powerful individuals in the empire. Now, at this point in time, pagan worship became against the law, it was forbidden on pain of death so what do you do if you're a pagan priest and now you don't have a job? Oh, you convert to Christianity. And what are you going to do when you have all these other pagans who they don't want to die, so they convert to Christianity? How do you handle that? You don't have enough pastors to go around. You don't have enough lay leaders to go around. You bring all the pagan priests and and them in and convert them and they'll, they'll do the job. And so you have this flood of unbelievers, not just coming into the church, but coming into the ministry and these church leaders merged Greek and pagan philosophy with Christian theology. The word pergamos means thoroughly married. And thus, in the, this period of the, church, of, church's hist, of the church's history, we see the sad prophecy of the third parable of Matthew 13 come true. In Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which when it is, which a man took and sowed in his field. That's a beautiful seed God sows into the field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. It's a tiny thing. If you've been to Israel with us, you see the mustard seeds, uh, trees, they're just just plants. Nobody's going to be, you know, no bird's going to be landing on it. I don't even know if a butterfly would want to land on it. But look what happens here. But when it is grown, it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and they lodge in its branches. Now, there are two things that concern me about that because I've heard people preach on those verses and go, isn't it wonderful what God has done? The church started like this tiny grain of mustard seed and now it's grown in this wonderful global worldwide thing. First off, birds are never a positive thing in Scripture. Every time we see them, for, well, I'll just say in Matthew 13, who are the animals that come and snatch the seeds before it can take root in people's hearts? The birds. Who are the things that Abraham had to beat off in his dream, you know, keep away from the offerings and stuff, you know? The birds. They're always in Scripture a negative thing, never a positive thing. And when you see this mustard tree growing into this massive tree that all the birds of the world can come and find a home in its branches, that's not good growth, that's abnormal growth. What Jesus is predicting there is that the church is going to experience abnormal growth and unbelievers in the enemy is going to find a home under its, in its branches. It's exactly what we saw during this period of church history. I don't know if the church pergamos repented when Jesus told them about the false teachers and how they needed to get rid of them, but I can tell you this, the church of the fourth century did not repent. Because almost all the false doctrine that came to govern the church during the dark ages stems from the false teaching of church leaders who lived during the fourth and fifth centuries during the period of Pergamos. And you know what? When false teaching is tolerated for that long, what gets left behind? This gets left behind. And thus, this time period of false, tolerating false teachers, it gave rise to a time period similar to the conditions we see in Thyatira, the fourth church. Remember, Thyatira was a hardworking church, but it was one filled with false teaching and sexual immorality. It was a church where Jesus said many of its members were not born again. Jesus, in fact, confronted one of these false teachers, Jezebel, and who streamlined these ideas. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not you know, if you don't agree with me on this, that's fine. But I find it very eerie that when you read Matthew 13 and you look at the fourth parable, it mentions specifically a woman. In Matthew 4, 13, verses 31 and, thir- or, I'm sorry, verse 33, it says another parable. This is the fourth parable. Another parable, he spoke unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole was leavened. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5.8 that leaven is a symbol for sin. And so what we find in this parable that Jesus tells about what's going to happen to the church at some point in time is a woman is going to put sin, slip sin, into the middle of a loaf of bread. And even though it's only three measures of it, when it starts, it's going to infect the entire loaf. The tolerations of the fourth and fifth century church leaders grew into wholesale wickedness in just a few hundred years. If you research church leaders between 900 and 15 AD, you will find church-sponsored orgies, lives filled with adultery, you will find the fathering of illegitimate children from these leaders, murder, the buying and selling of leadership positions, and an entire list of other wicked deeds. Now, the word Thyatira means continual sacrifices, these church leaders during these dark times, they taught that faith in the cross of Christ could only forgive your original sin. It can't forgive the sins you commit on a week-to-week basis. So to deal with your week-to-week sins, these church leaders codified something called the sacramental system. This was a doctrine that if you performed certain rituals, that was how you received God's grace for the sins you actually commit. One of these particular sacraments claimed that when you took communion, that they actually turned the body and the blood, the, 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 I'm sorry, the, the bread and the juice into the body and blood of Jesus, of Jesus, and that they would re-crucify him again, kill him again, so that your sins could be forgiven, establishing a Thyatira in the church, a continual sacrifice, instead of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, as the Scriptures say. Now, that's very convenient for church leaders because if you're the only ones who can administer these rituals and therefore give people the grace that they need to be forgiven and saved, then who becomes the source of salvation? Those church leaders. Church leaders could give or deny salvation to whomever they wished, and they did. Now, if that sounds awful and radically different from the Bible, that's because it is awful and radically different from the Bible. Things were very bad during this period of church history during those centuries, just like they were very bad in Thyatira. Things were so bad in Thyatira that Jesus warned that he would cast them into the great tribulation, the seven-year tribulation period, that they didn't repent. And sadly, there will be churches that follow the sacramental system in the great Tribulation. Now, were there born-again believers who remained faithful during that dark period of history? Yes, just like there's people who are faithful in churches like that in this period of history, just like there were faithful people in Thyatira, true believers. To them, Jesus said, just stay faithful and keep going forward. (laughs) He didn't say leave. He said, just keep being faithful and keep going forward. These believers they tried to reform the church between 900 and 15 A.D., but they experienced heavy persecution from those who wanted to retain power. However, they finally did succeed during a movement known as the Protestant Reformation. Not necessarily in changing things, but they succeeded in escaping. And that brings us to Sardis, the fifth church, the fifth period of church history. The word Sardis means those who escape. During the Protestant Reformation, many broke from the established church. The scriptures were now translated into different languages so believers could read it for themselves and know what God said. It was a time of great persecution, but it was also a time of rediscovering God's word. Now, if you were paying attention during my teaching on Sardis, you'll remember, but Pastor Will, didn't Jesus have nothing good to say about Sardis? You're correct. He said they had a name that they were alive, but they were actually dead. How is that possible when they brought the church out of such darkness? Well, Jesus tells them why. You didn't reform enough. Verse 2 of Revelation 3 says, For I have not found your works perfect, complete before God. Those who escaped the things that they felt they were chained to ran right back to those same heresies. Countries shed the idea of a holy Roman emperor, but they replaced it with denominational state churches. Protestants and Catholics were killing each other all over Europe because of their differences. And thus, many remained unsaved. It was simply their membership that changed. Jesus warned Sardis that if they did not repent, they would be left behind when he returned for his bride. And the Christian institutions that were founded during the Reformation, many of them remain today. But sadly, many of them don't even teach the gospel anymore. These organizations will be present during the Great Tribulation if they don't remember how they started and repent. Again, is there a remnant in those churches? Of course there are, many of them, just like there were in Thyatira-type churches. And Jesus promises to them that they will walk with Him in white. Hold fast what you have is all He says to them. But this brings us to the sixth church, Philadelphia, the church with the open door. And we see this open door reflected in the great period of mission work in the 18th and the 19th centuries. Philadelphia means brotherly love and what did Jesus say the greatest love was? That you would lay your life down for your friends, right? So many people during this time period denied themselves, laid down whatever futures they had originally planned for their lives to go and seek out the sheep who'd gone astray. Jesus also said this church had a little strength and we learned that this is because they remained humble and they stuck to the Bible the 18th and 19th centuries were a time of revival in the interest in the word of God like never before. A time of return to simplicity, not just in the gospel, but in understanding scripture. You know, I'd like to say that our, my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, embodied this idea with a focus on what he called simply teaching the Bible simply. You know, that that's what our job is as pastors. Our job is as Bible teachers. Simply teach the Bible Simply. But as you know, Pastor Chuck wasn't around in the 18th and the 19th centuries. And by the time Pastor Chuck came around toward the end of the 20th century, he was an anomaly. The love for the Bible was no longer the norm in most churches in the 20th century. Laodicea had taken over, which brings us to the state of the church today. Throughout our study of these seven churches, I mentioned that our goal is to be like Smyrna or Philadelphia, the church two churches that Jesus had zero correction for. And while... Smyrna churches and Philadelphia-like churches do exist today. Sadly, Laodicea is the norm. It is the norm. Laodicea was actually a common name among the ladies of the Seleucid royal family. When they would have a daughter, they would frequently name her Laodicea. Why? Because they were trying to communicate something to the people. The word Laodicea means justice for the people. We are your saviors. We are your leaders, you know? We will save you. It stands for leaders who bring righteousness and blessing to the common person, a fitting term for the last stage of church history. Remember when I said last week that Laodicea was the only church that Jesus defined by its members instead of its location? He didn't say, and to the church that's in Laodicea, he said, to the church of the Laodiceans. I told you that church had become, for Laodiceans, a consumer experience instead of a worship experience. Is there any more apt description of worship and church in the 20th and 21st centuries? It has become a consumer experience. It is no longer a worship experience. Teaching the Bible was exchanged for, we need anointed public speakers. Servants of God's people was exchanged for cults of personality Today, it's more important for church leaders to be in touch with politics, psychological counseling techniques, and a cultural understanding than it is to just teach the Bible simply. It's more important to be connected to influential members in the community, to be a pastor or a teacher who's faithful to your spouse or in your finances. It's more important to be a powerful speaker or a musician who stirs people's hearts than it is to just do what Jesus told Peter, if you love me, Feed my sheep. We've got way too many royal family members in the pulpit instead of shepherds. Paul said there's not many mighty, not many gifted, not many who are influential that are called. He uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. The base things, the things that people don't look and go, ooh, that guy could be awesome for Jesus. He uses the weak things to confound the strong. We've got way too many royal family members in the pulpit instead of shepherds. We've got way too many churches that are defined by their leaders instead of their savior. Now the argument against this bitter pastor will is this. How can you say that when we're rich? Our buildings are packed, man. We don't need anything. We've got the wheel, Jesus. You just sit back and relax. Now the seventh parable of Matthew 13 It compares the kingdom of heaven to a net that is cast into the sea, and it brings in every different kind of fish. But I want to read to you verses 48 through 50, because this is what Jesus says will happen to that net. In chapter 13, verse 48, he says, which, the net, when it was full, they drew it to shore and they sat down and they gathered the good into vessels, but they cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. And there shall be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Sadly, churches today, all over the world, are filled with unbelievers and self-sufficient believers. We are living in the great apostasy that Jesus and the apostles foretold would come before He returned. That's all I've got. God bless you. History lesson over. And if I ended my sermon there, it would indeed be depressing and probably not very helpful. So what's the point of the history lesson? Can I say it's this? Certainly not to lash out at other churches or our own church or at other Christians. Not to lash out at the problem because if that's our response this morning, then we actually prove we're part of self-righteous laodicea. I brought this up to address the question of How can we be solid believers when we're living in the period of Laodicea? It's a good question to ask. And I'll tell you right now, there are tons of false teachers out there who wanna answer that question for you. How can we be solid believers when we're living in the period of Laodicea? And I wanna close with two thoughts. First, if we're going to be solid believers, those who are living in Laodicea, if we're gonna be solid in the midst of that, We need to understand the importance of taking heed to Jesus' warnings that he gives to Laodicea. And then, number two, we need to understand the importance of understanding his promise to Laodicea. So, let's look at the first one the importance of heeding the warnings. As a Christian who is living in the time of Laodicea, you need to understand this. You are going to be tempted to leave the Word of God, you are going to be tempted to lean on your own understanding. You are going to be tempted to become like the world all the while you're being told you're actually being salt and light. Jesus warned his disciples just before the great tribulation that certain things would happen. And in Matthew 24, verses 11 through 13, speaking to his disciples, not to unbelievers, he said this, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, because we're living in Laodicea, the love of many shall wax cold, the King James says, but literally it means shall be made to grow cold. Made by who? The false teachers that shall arise and deceive many. But in contrast to listening to false teachers and letting them make my heart grow cold, he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. What's my point? Beware of men and women whose ministries are more about them than about Jesus. They are going to abound in this time period. Beware of men and women whose ministries and podcasts and YouTube uh, whatevers are their ministries that cause your heart to grow cold towards your fellow man instead of loving your enemies like Jesus told you to. Stick to the Bible and recognize your everyday need for Jesus and his way of doing things because if you and I do not, we will be deceived. We must take heed to his warning to not become self-sufficient, to come to his word every day so we can get those riches that we need, so we can get those white clothes, the good deeds. We can know what it means to really have good deeds as a Christian. We can have true riches in Christ, you know, that that we wouldn't be poor, and then that we can get the eye salve so we won't be blind, so we can know what Jesus wants us to do in these difficult times, how we should live. We need to heed the warnings. But secondly, we need to understand the promise. You know, the things that Jesus, that the Laodiceans were doing, they turned Jesus' stomach. But does he lash out at them? He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. And I'm knocking at your door. I'm not hurling off in an alley somewhere because you make me sick. I'm knocking at the door. I want to come close. Open the door so I can come in. The things they did may have turned his stomach, but he still loved them and wanted to be close to them. Listen, if you see a lot of laodicea in you or around you, then hear this good news. He wants to dine with you still. He still wants to dine with all those people who are turning your stomach right now. The answer to seeing Laodicea in you or around you isn't to give up or to lash out. The answer is repentance. Every day, humble repentance. It's running to the door every day and opening it so Jesus can come in and advise us and dine with us. Guys, the state of the church, it's not good right now. <laughs> it is a time of great temptation for us. But cheer up. Jesus already overcame And because he overcame, we will overcome too. That's the promise to Laodicea. That's the promise for you and me. Let's all stand. Oh, Lord Jesus, we live in difficult times. You told the disciples, in this world you have tribulation. Lord, we're there. But Lord, you told them, be of good cheer. Cheer up, have hope. I've overcome the world. And if I've overcome, you will too. So Lord, here we are, (laughs) broken vessels, cracked pots that you've put your treasure in. Lord, we we don't want to go our own way. We don't want to keep the door shut. We don't want to say we've got the wheel. We know how to do this. Lord, we want to be those who open the door every day who welcome you to the table that you might feed us that fresh manna from heaven from your word every single day, that you might instruct us, that you might give us that eye salve so we can truly see, that you would put righteous deeds upon us like clothes so we wouldn't walk around naked and exposed or that we would be truly rich even if we were to lose everything here, that we would be those who shine for you and therefore, because men see our good deeds and glorify you, we will shine like the stars in the heaven as Daniel predicted Lord, that is our desire, to make disciples, to be faithful with the work you've given to us. And so, Lord, whether we've stumbled and fallen into Laodicean thinking, or, Lord, whether we've been angry or frustrated or given up hope, our commitment to you today is to say, Lord, we're gonna occupy till you come, to hope to the end, to be faithful to the end, so that when you come back, you'll find us doing the work your Father called us to do. We love you and we thank you for this beautiful promise and we choose to heed your warnings and stick to your word in Jesus' name, amen.